It's one thing to hear about what an area looks like. It's another thing to see it and to feel it for yourself. When Joe, Jessica, and I drove the area surrounding Whirlwind Hill, it became evident real quick just how isolated this area is. And that's in 2019. If Doreen walked out of that house on that June evening of 1988, she would likely get herself lost almost immediately. They had only moved into the house 10 days earlier. She didn't know the area, so she wouldn't have had a plan on where she was headed other than to just follow the road. For a 12-year-old girl in 1988, with no cell phone, no technology, to walk from a house on Whirlwind Hill Road in the dark, and then to safely make it between 5 to 7 miles to one of the bowling alleys in Wallingford at the time, it's just not feasible. Those roads, which run through farmland, through thick wooded areas over Mackenzie Reservoir, and are very winding and have no sidewalks, are not made for walking. That, coupled with the knowledge that the serial killer Haddon Clark was known to make up claims of killing and burying young women and girls throughout the Northeast just for the purpose of getting field trips out of jail, makes the evidence clear to me that we should rule out Haddon Clark. It's very important in this case to understand that particular area of Wallingford. For an area that is so rural, surrounded by farmland and thick with forest now, in 2019, envision what it would look like 30 years ago and what that would mean for a 12-year-old girl who didn't know the area, walking it alone in the dark. In this episode, I'm going to share with you another newspaper article from the Record Journal written nearly a decade after Doreen disappeared. This is Season 2, Episode 4 of Faded Out. I'm Sarah Dimio. About a month ago, I spoke to Mike Bouchard. Mike has been a police officer in Bridgeport, Connecticut for 34 years. He's also a local author who has written five books and is currently working on another. He wrote a book titled Missing in Connecticut, which chronicles 105 missing persons cold cases in Connecticut. Doreen's is among them. Mike has extensive knowledge on the case, and one of the first things I wanted to know from him was what did he think about Haddon Clark as a suspect? There's a a whole angle of um, a serial killer that had uh, ties to the area by the name of Haddon Clark. Um, Yeah, I know know who he is. Yeah, I would would, would check him off the list. You you don't think that that's a likely scenario that Haddon Clark could have been involved? No. In the first episode of this season, I read an entry on Doreen from The Charlie Project. Here's a specific passage from that entry. And just a reminder, Donna Jones, Doreen's mother, is referred to as Donna Lee, as that's now her married name. The entry reads, quote, Mark was known for his violent temper and his account of the day Doreen went missing was inconsistent. He admitted he pushed her into a window, breaking it. 
Sharon said she didn't believe her husband's story about her disappearance because their front door had a deadbolt and had to be opened from the inside with a key. Mark visited his mother, Lorraine Vincent, a few days after Doreen vanished and didn't tell her Doreen was missing. He also didn't tell Doreen's mother, Donna Lee. She didn't find out Doreen was missing until June 18th when she visited her ex-husband's home. Lee had planned to pick up Doreen on June 17th, but when she called Mark's house, no one answered. He had removed the phone from the wall, end quote. And just skipping ahead a paragraph, it also says, quote, Sharon and Mark separated later that summer, and Mark moved out of the Wallingford home without leaving a forwarding address with the police. The police were unable to locate him for some time. About a year after Doreen's disappearance, law enforcement searched Mark's mother Lorraine's home in Bethel, Connecticut, for evidence in her case. They found some items Mark claimed she had taken with her when she left. They also found a gun, legally registered to Sharon, and charged Mark with being a felon in possession in a firearm. He was sentenced to two years in prison. So now that you have that piece of information, I'd like to share with you another article given to me by Lauren Tacoris at the Record Journal. This article is substantially longer than the ones that I read in episode two, and it uncovers more details that hadn't been mentioned before. The date is February 19th, 1995 and it was written by Daryl Campagna. Still missing after almost seven years. Last October, a photograph of 12-year-old Doreen Vincent was sent to 53 million homes across the country on a direct mail card as part of a national effort to publicize this town's most haunting missing person case. Doreen's picture, showing a little girl with a winsome smile and a vulnerable expression in her eyes, was taken shortly before she disappeared from her Whirlwind Hill Road home on a June night in 1988. The direct mail photo campaign produced hours of extra work for Wallingford detectives, who followed up on dozens of reported sightings of Doreen after the photo circulated. Well-meaning strangers and at least one misguided practical joker who was charged with filing a false report claimed to have seen a grown-up Doreen as a dancer in a bar, an enlisted servicewoman in uniform, or a model in a magazine. But none of those reports ever produced a lead, and the case continues to be fraught with conflicting information and baffling dead ends. Doreen would have turned 19 on September 30th. Her father, Mark Vincent, claimed she was a runaway, but her mother's family has never believed she voluntarily left home. They doubt she is still alive. Her body has never been found, and in nearly seven years, she has never contacted any of her friends or relatives. The world has not forgot about Doreen Vincent, said Detective Sergeant Edward D'Onofrio, who is overseeing the investigation with Detective Robert Fliss. At this point, we don't have evidence to go forward without a body. I would say the girl's missing under suspicious circumstances. That's what the facts show. It's just not considered a murder only because we don't have the supporting evidence. But the case is still very much active, D'Onofrio said. This spring, detectives expect to once again search Huntington State Park in Bethel for Doreen's body, as they have every spring for the past several years. The rural, heavily wooded 883-acre park, with its many ponds and streams, has been the focus of searches ever since a park ranger reported seeing a pickup truck there shortly after Doreen disappeared in 1988. The truck matched the description of one owned by Doreen's father, Mark Vincent. Vincent grew up in Bethel 
and his mother, Lori Vincent, still lives there. Mark Vincent, who now lives in Milford with his third wife, has never been named a suspect in his daughter's disappearance, but his behavior throughout the case has been called highly questionable by a detective who served as a consultant to the Wallingford police. And Wallingford detectives have focused their efforts on Vincent several times during their investigation. In a recent interview, Vincent said he knows he has been the subject of much speculation and suspicion. He has been unable to work cooperatively with Wallingford detectives, he said, because they are biased against him. I'm so tired of listening to the police's running after the wind, Vincent said. Right from the beginning, they said, we don't know what happened, so we think you did it. I love my daughter and I miss her and I just hope that she's all right. In 1989, Wallingford detectives obtained a search and seizure warrant for Lori Vincent's Bethel home, where Mark was living at the time. While looking for Doreen's medical records, personal papers, and clothing in the house, detectives found a revolver. Vincent was prohibited under Connecticut law from owning a revolver because he has a felony conviction stemming from a burglary in New York. Vincent appealed the police seizure of the gun, claiming the warrant was invalid because any probable cause to search his residence had lapsed due to the 13-month time span between Doreen's disappearance and the search. The case went to the state Supreme Court, which in April 1994 upheld Vincent's conviction for possessing the revolver. In its opinion, the court stated that the Wallingford police were seeking clearly relevant information to help them resolve the daughter's sudden and suspicious disappearance. The Supreme Court noted that no specific crime was described in the affidavit or the warrant, but the Supreme Court upheld the appellate court's ruling that the affidavit accompanying the warrant provided a substantial factual basis upon which the judge who signed the warrant could have found probable cause to believe the defendant's daughter disappeared as a result of criminal activity involving the defendant. Although a finding of probable cause was needed before a search warrant could be issued, such a finding should not be interpreted as establishing guilt. The opinion also stated that Vincent admitted to police that he had a volatile temper and that on June 15, 1988, he had become angry with Doreen, had hit her, and had pushed her into a window, breaking it, and that he had taken photographs of Doreen in her underwear in the weeks prior to her disappearance. June 15, 1988 was the day that Vincent claimed Doreen had run away from home, although he did not report her missing until three days later. I am absolutely 100% certain that this man knows what happened, said Donna Jones, 36, of Waterbury, who is Doreen's mother and Vincent's first wife. The years of waiting have taken a heavy toll on her family, Jones said. In the beginning, you think, she's going to turn up. Everything's going to be fine. I did too. Then everything snowballed. Now, she said, her only hope is, quote, just to find out something, just for there to be an end, whatever it may be. It's just hard not knowing what happened. Eventually something will turn up, said Josephine Murad, Doreen's maternal grandmother. There has to be somebody who saw something. Doreen had lived with each of her parents at different times in the seven years following their divorce, Jones said. Mark Vincent appeared to adore his daughter and was frantically worried about her once when she ran away to Jones's Waterbury home, the mother recalled. Jones also acknowledged that she and her former husband had clashed over Doreen. Jones once picked the girl up at school and put her on a plane to her parents' Florida home without Vincent's permission because she strongly disagreed with the stringent religious upbringing that Vincent, a born-again Christian, was imposing on Doreen. 
Jones said those memories of a father who alternated between strict authoritarianism and demonstrative affection contrasted sharply with Vincent's unconcerned behavior on June 18, 1988. On that day, Jones planned to pick Doreen up for the weekend and drove to the Vincent's Whirlwind Hill Road home. There, she learned that Doreen had purportedly run away three nights earlier, but that Vincent had still not contacted police, a fact that has since been confirmed in the Supreme Court ruling. The only reason he reported it was because I insisted he do so, Jones recalled. Mark was outside mowing the lawn like nothing happened. I said, where's Doreen? He said, you tell me and she had been gone from three days prior. Then I started thinking, she's been gone missing since Wednesday, and he's out mowing the lawn and not flipping out about it? In a recent interview, Lori Vincent said her son did not report Doreen missing immediately because he, quote, was embarrassed because he had tried so hard to get a loving family together. Lori Vincent said she is estranged from her son because of a disagreement that has nothing to do with Doreen's case. She said that she, too, is worn out with worry about Doreen and the unresolved investigation. You spend every day wondering if she got picked up for white slave trade, Lori Vincent said. Everything goes through your head. Last May, Herman Hargrove, a retired New York City police detective with an expertise in missing person cases, spent two days reviewing the Wallingford detective's case file on Doreen. Hargrove is a volunteer consultant for the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, a private, nonprofit national clearinghouse of information on missing child cases that is partially funded by the U.S. Department of Justice. I thought they did one hell of a damn good job, Hargrove said of the Wallingford detectives' efforts. They really touched almost every base I could think of. Hargrove said he came away from his review convinced that Doreen is dead and that Mark Vincent, quote, knows a lot more than he was saying. Donna Jones agrees with that assessment, but wonders if anything could compel her former husband to tell police whatever he may know. I think he will take the secret to his grave, she said. Do you want to help me solve this case? If so, you can, by becoming a monthly contributor to Faded Out on Patreon. You can choose any amount you like, and you will find that there are different tiers for rewards that you can get back, based on how much you decide to give. You can follow my weekly blog that I put out every Monday after a new episode goes out. You can also find behind-the-scenes photos, videos, and, as we go along, other documents in the case. So please help us in our journey to find out what happened to Doreen Vincent by going to patreon.com slash faded out podcast. Thank you. Something that is consistent with every article about Doreen, both in print and online, is that they all mention how she had previously hitchhiked once before from her father's home when he lived in Bridgeport to her mother's house. From the first day that she was reported missing, she had that sort of brand on her. Runaway. In our society, the word runaway has connotations to it. Typically, there's a lot of assumption attached to it. 
Even just by going back a few months to when I first announced Doreen Vincent as the subject of season two, I had posted a flyer with two pictures of her under the headline, Did You Know This Girl? Within hours, a woman commented on the post something to the effect of, I hope she comes home, just out doing her thing. On a 30-year-old cold case, that was still the comment. That comment was since deleted. I noticed also, too, that the Record Journal article from 1995 says at the beginning that there were various reported sightings of Doreen, including as a dancer in a bar, a servicewoman in uniform, and as a model in a magazine. The implications of the word runaway to me does not match the impression I got of a sweet, introverted young girl who loved music and loved scrapbooking. So when I spoke to Mike Bouchard, I mentioned this disconnect. I don't know that Doreen is really accurately described as a person. I think they try to paint her as sort of a, a what we would call a troubled kid. Uh, a, a, rebel, a rebel rouser. Right. Yeah. And and you see, and see, and here again, this is where you you have you you see. It's easy. It's easy to um, label somebody like that. But however, you have to go back to the you know the the family environment. You know, people just you know their actions are basically a reflection of things that they've either experienced or are experiencing uh, within the household. So with that being the case, uh, we don't we don't know what was going on in that house, household. You, you know, the house was designed so more or less so people couldn't get out. The 1995 article also talks about how that one time when Doreen did run away from her father's home, Mark was frantically worried about her. Whereas when Donna came to pick Doreen up on June 18, 1988, he was outside mowing the lawn. When I spoke to Donna, she vividly remembered the day that Doreen had hitchhiked to her house. He would never let it go three days. Normally, he would never let it go three days because I do remember her taking off before and him coming to the house. And where is she? Where, you know, where is she? So she must have, see, she must have came to the house and he came there and, you know, where is she? Where is she? That one time that Doreen took off before, Mark was right behind her. Doreen showed up at Donna's house. Then Mark showed up at the house immediately after, demanding to know where Doreen was. Then when I spoke to Donna's sisters, Carol and Debbie, they backed up what Donna said. Did Doreen ever seem like the type that would just up and leave like that, just take off on foot from somewhere one night? Not that she doesn't know where she's going. Mm-hmm. She just no, moved there. No, they had just moved there. That's not something she would do. She did, Donna probably mentioned, she did run away one time before from Bridgeport to Waterbury. Mm-hmm. But yeah, and I, he I, was yeah. right behind her. He was there, I believe it was that same night. Within 15 minutes of when she got there. Within 15 minutes, yeah. Mm-hmm. No, it was a def- definitely a different um, scenario. No, it was a different reaction from him. And that's the other thing that I spoke to Donna about, too, is that I proposed the idea to her that, like, oh, well, maybe if, you know, she and Mark did get into a fight that night, maybe she could have took off on foot. Maybe she tried to hitchhike again, and maybe just whoever picked her up, maybe that ended badly. But even Donna said, well, no, because of Mark's reaction, there was no 
sense of urgency that he had. He would have called. He would have Mm -hmm. flipped out. He would have been at our house, Mm -hmm. at her house, definitely, knocking on the door to find out where is she. Frantic worry when she left from Mark's home in Bridgeport. No reaction three days after she left from Mark's house in Wallingford. Mike Bouchard had some thoughts on the inconsistencies. What I noticed right off right off, was that a lot of the statements that were being uh, made uh, by the father were inconsistent with uh, statements made by other people. Uh, so that kind of, you know, threw up a, a few red flags. You know, his, his initial statement was that uh, he at about 8.30, 9 o'clock, he was in the kitchen with his uh, with his daughter. Um, I guess there was a little bit of an argument. Uh, he says after the argument, he went to his workshop. I'm not sure if the workshop was in the in the house or in another location, but that's the last time he said he saw her. However, he was able to give the police a description of what she was wearing and that she took money. Well, how would you know that unless you know? How would you know that? How would you know? And then she, he made a statement that she she left for the front door. Well, if you weren't in the house or in that particular part of the house at the time, how would you know she had left through the front door? Now, his his wife at the time had reported that he had um, had locked and put a lock on the front door that could only be opened by a key. Right. Uh, she had also mentioned that. Uh, Dorian had gone to a uh, an altercation with her father, and that a window was smashed in the house because uh, the father pushed uh, Dorian into the window. Yeah. Um, another big inconsistency I found, as far as the stories go, were that um, Mark said initially that his Mark's mother, her grandmother, and uh, Dorian didn't have any type of relationship. At best, it was uh, uh, estranged. So, on June, I believe it was 17th of that year, uh, he had gone over to his uh, mother's house, failed failed to tell the mother that Dorian was missing. Uh, On the 18th, he spoke with uh, Dorian's mother, and told uh, Dorian's mother that he had sent her to the grandmother's house. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the gra- the grandmother, you know, if the grandmother didn't know that Dorian was missing on June seventeenth, then how would she how how would she have you know physical custody of her? on the 18th, according to his conversation. And so, so that's, that's not, you know, it, it just doesn't, it just doesn't line up, you know, and then, then we have the issue with him removing the phone from the wall. Um, I believe that there were other circumstances going on in the house. I mean, you remove the phone from the wall, you're, you're locking the doors. Why, why do people do that? It, it seems like the house is more of a containment field rather than a, uh, a normal house. And remember, they had only lived at that house in Wallingford for 10 days. 
In my next episode, we're going to talk more about that house and the history of the property and how Mark Vincent came to live there with his family. We'll also hear from a neighbor who lived on that street in June of 1988 and still lives there to this day. We'll continue to dissect the many details in the Record Journal article from 1995. At the time that that article was written, Doreen had already been missing for seven years. And now, with it being almost 31 years, while it's natural to want to believe that someone who's been gone for that long could still be alive somewhere, Mike Bouchard had this to say. The simple fact is that she hasn't shown up since 1988. Mm -hmm. She's not going to show up. I mean, it's a sad fact, but... It, it is what it is. I mean, you know, uh, they still list her as missing because, you know, she hasn't been found. However, people that don't show up for that long of time, they don't have driver's licenses. There's nothing that you can check. Their credit card, you know, their social security numbers haven't been used. Uh, that's not somebody who just wandered away and started a new life somewhere. So, yeah, you know, exactly. so, so I, I believe it's... I believe that it's, it's it's more than a missing persons case, uh, you know. But I'm not I'm not the one investigating it, so uh, I'll I'll let the department investigating it determine what they think it is. But but yeah, I, I think it's beyond a, a missing per, a persons case. So what could have happened in those ten days that led up to Doreen disappearing from that house, never to be seen again? We'll be hearing more from Mike in the episodes to come. Please reach out to us on Facebook at facebook.com slash fadedoutpodcast. There's also a closed group that you can request to join called Followers of Faded Out, where we discuss the case more in depth. We are also on Instagram as Faded Out Podcast. You can also reach out to us directly by email at fadedoutpodcast at gmail.com. Please also become a patron on Patreon. Exclusive content for Patreon is uploaded every Monday, which includes my weekly blog. Thank you for joining me for episode four of season two. I'm Sarah Dimio. See you next time. Faded Out is written, hosted, and edited by me. The newspaper narration was provided by Maxwell McGee. Background research by Jessica Fritz Aguire. Produced by Joe Aguire and Jason Panette of Clovercrest Media Group. Visit clovercrestmedia.com for more on Faded Out, as well as other great original podcasts. Subscribe to Faded Out on iTunes, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts.